Welcome to the Redeemer Lincoln Square podcast. Our church began in 2017 and is located just down the street from Lincoln Center in the Lincoln Square neighborhood of Manhattan. Our podcast will primarily feature sermons from our Sunday worship service and the occasional interview or ministry resource. We hope you'll subscribe. Now, here's today's message. Galatians 5, verses 16 to 26. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Good morning, and welcome to Redeemer Lincoln Square. This is the first week after Easter, after the resurrection. And traditionally in the church calendar, this is the time when the church begins to devote more time on how to live in light of the resurrection. Leading up to Easter, we're talking about the need for, why we have to have it. But now is how do we apply it? And coming out of Easter right now then, to live in light of the resurrection, doesn't mean to hope for a return to normalcy before the coronavirus. And the reason why is because we can't go back to business as usual. Those things weren't actually working for us in the first place, and hopefully we've started to see that. Now is the time to let the impact of the change of the resurrection into our lives. As we finish out our series on Galatians, Paul wants us to be able to change. He wants us to be able to be different. This is the number one question that I get asked as a pastor. How do I change from who I am? How do I be different? See, in the midst of this pandemic, this is the question to ask, to not waste our time. To not come out of this tragedy changed would be a tragedy. So we must ask this question, how do we change. And our text today, we can look at it in three headings to help us. What's the problem? What must we do? And then lastly, how can we do it? What's the problem? What must we do? And then how can we actually do it? So first, what's the problem? And we have to start here because unless we know what the issue is, unless we can diagnose what the root issue is, we won't actually change. Kind of like you, you'll end up treating the symptom of a problem, not the problem itself. We need to get to the core of the disease. So, for instance, if we assume 
that the problem for why we don't change is we're just undisciplined. And the solution to the disease is just more rules and regulations. And that looks good on the surface, but all we've done is jury-rigged the heart. That the outside looks good and nice, but the inside is left unchanged. Like, For instance, people who uh, look very fit and healthy, but then they're smoking a pack a day. On the outside, they look great, but on the inside, their lungs are black. A morally constrained heart might on the outside look good, but on the inside be black. So that's still not real change. So maybe then the solution that you might say, say, okay, well, that's not working. Maybe just willpower. Nike, as a company, has made billions off the motto, just do it. And a lot of our now self-help books say the same thing. They say to make any meaningful change in your life, you have to realize that you're the one in control. Which, let's be honest, you need to have some level of agency in your own life. That's fair. But just thinking that is not enough. How many times have we made the thought, today's going to be different. Today I'm, going to, I'm, I'm in control of my life and, and I'm going to be different now. You, know, you can say that in the mirror as many times as you want to make meaningful changes, but then you fail again and again and again. We have to acknowledge then we're actually in a lot less control than we thought. Paul's been saying that this entire letter. The phrase that he utters over and over again, that you're enslaved to sin. The imagery is supposed to be one of being shackled, bound, stuck. That you can strive with your will all you want. But the striving against, that's just striving against the chains. It, it, you, you're exerting your, your will, but not actually moving the heart. So look at verse 16 here. It says that the natural disposition is for the desires of the flesh. And at first you, you might think, oh, okay, then Paul must be against desires. You know, the world, of course, says the opposite. Go further into your desires. You are what you desire. That's the locus of your being. This is where you need to get into the Greek. Paul isn't against desires as a whole. The word here translated as desires is the Greek word epithemia. And themia means desires, passions, but epi means over or macro. So the problem here are not desires, it's over desires. So your problem isn't your job. It's that you epithemia your job. You've infused it. You fixate it on it. You over-desire it so that you make it more important to your identity than you should. Your looks are fine, but when you epithemia your looks, that's the problem. You're, you know, have, desiring a family is fine, but when you, you know, epithemia your family, you make it too much your identity and who you are. It crushes you because either it can't live up to your expectations or you won't live up to its expectations. And this is why our cultural moment says just give in to your desires way too simplistic. The degree by which we hold these desires matter, how much we hold them. And this is why Paul is saying you don't change. You don't change because you've taken good things, like good desires, and you've made them too important to you. You've over-desired them. And look what happens. And he gives us the list in verse 19. This negative list breaks down into four categories. There's sex, religion, society, and drink. Now, clearly, this is not an exhaustive list. There's a lot of other things out there. But he's trying to show you a representation of what happens when you take good things and make them too important. Sex is a good thing. But when you 
epithemia it, it turns into debauchery, which is excessive. Desiring a glass of wine, desiring wine is not a problem. But when you epithemia it, it turns into drunkenness. So all these words actually illustrate that to some degree. And so uh, you need to know, though, it's not just, these are not one-off mess-ups. These are not one-off actions. Look, the next verse, verse 21, Paul says, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And people think, oh, that's kind of harsh. But the phrase, those who live like this, that's not talking about individual actions. This is He's referring to habitual practice. That, in other words, if you live a life habitually, regularly, constantly, if there's a pattern, well, then clearly you're not desiring the kingdom of God. You have another desire in your life. That's why you're enslaved and stuck. And I think this is the worst part about all this over-desiring is that for the most of us, we don't know what we don't know. That the enslavement is so deep, we don't even know that we're enslaved. And so why would you ever try to get out of it if you don't even know you're in it? So whether you're religious or not, or a Christian or not this morning, you need to see that our over-desires are hard to detect. This is why if somebody comes along and just tells you what they are, you tend not to hear it. It has to be shown to you. And the way it's usually shown to you is in stress. It's in brokenness, when you're suffering, when things are falling apart. And that's why this pandemic might be showing you what you've been enslaved to. We should be asking, what might this, what, what, what might we've been, go, our hearts been going after and over-desires before the pandemic that's no longer working now? In the Daily News, this week there was an op-ed piece by Molly Yo, who actually goes to Lincoln Square. And she talks about her journey as a professional ballerina. And she talks about how she spent over two decades, every moment of her life, full dedication, striving, attention to detail, getting every fiber of her body to literally respond in the right way. And as she's on the cusp of making it, she gets injured. And she has to show up still every day. And yet, because she's injured, she has to sit in a metal chair and watch other people practice and dance and perform. So for months, her one task is to sit in that metal chair. And she talks about being forced to ask herself. She knew who she was when she was a ballet dancer. But did she know who she was in a metal chair? It's the same thing for us. We knew who we were before the pandemic, but do, now that we're in the metal chair, do we know who we are? When, when, when what we were putting our identity into is taken away, who are you? I was a lawyer, but now who are you? I was a New Yorker, now who are you? I think this is the point. You can't and you won't start changing. You won't get this resurrection power into your life until you come to terms that you have over-desired the wrong things. Sufjan Stevens, indie rock artist, years ago wrote a haunting song called uh, John Wayne Gracie Jr. where he remembers a man who uh, buried his victims under the floor of his house. And this is how he ends this song with these verses. He says, And in my best behavior, I am really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets I have hid. See, the human tendency is for us to point fingers at what we think the problem is out there, out there, out there, out there. But have you really looked beneath the floorboards, your own floorboards, at the secrets that you have hid? That's what you need to do. You you need to see your problem. First step. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, 
after our Sunday worship service. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastor and other members of our church community. If you have questions about today's message, send an email to lsq at redeemer.com or join us for our Sunday worship service. Now, here's the remainder of today's teaching. Secondly, if you actually do that, what do we do about it? And I'll give you a hint. The answer isn't try a little bit harder and become a better person. That's what everybody else says. Every other religion, every other non-religion just says try hard, be good. And, but this letter that Paul's writing to, to the Galatians, he's saying that's the problem. The religious people have been telling the Galatians, get the Mosaic law and try a little bit harder. You say, well, what's wrong with that? Because if the obedience is out of self-interest, it's not real obedience. If you're good so that you can win, then you're not really good. Heck, the minute that you think you're good, that's not good. I use this illustration a lot. If you help somebody cross the street, which hopefully in this time of self-distancing, you're not doing that. But theoretically, if you help somebody cross the street, it's a good action in and of itself. But what happens to that action is that you start taking it and you you say, yeah, I'm the kind of person who helps people cross streets. And you've taken a good thing and you've twisted it. and It's no longer good. So if goodness is a means to an end then, not an end in and of itself, then it's, it isn't good. The best example I can give you of this that I've heard from others is how we try, try to motivate ourselves. How do we try to motivate, for instance, kids, to be honest? It tends to be one of two things. We either, it's, we either use fear or we use pride. And I've definitely used it with my daughter. I've said, hey, don't lie or else nobody's going to trust you ever. That's fear. Or we use pride. We say, hey, don't lie because you know what? You're better than that. You're better than that. That's, that's pride. Now, ironically, we're using fear and pride to get them to be good. But why do you tend not to be honest? Usually because of fear and pride. Right? I don't tell the truth because I'm afraid. If I do, I'll be found out. So why are we trying to motivate people to tell the truth? <laughs> so, that, so they're you know, out of fear that they might be found out. It's still not being honest for honesty's sake. How do we get honesty for honesty's sake? How do we love God for who God is and not just what he gives you? What must we do? Paul tells us in verse 24, he says, first thing you have to do is you've got to crucify the flesh. The flesh is our epithemia. It's it's our over-desires. He says you need to put it to death. John Owen says, kill sin before it kills you. So to crucify it, by the way, is a very particular way to put something to death. That tells us a little bit about what Paul thinks what we must do. For instance, if you put sin to death by crucifixion, that means you have to do it without pity. Because crucifixion in the Greco-Roman world meant to die friendless, to die in shame, to die without honor, to die where people were away from you. We need to put our sin to death like that. That means not making excuses for it. That means not explaining it, saying how I needed this, how I have to have it. We need to take our good things and put them to death. But the way we need to do it, as one poet says, you need to lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Paul is saying not, you know, quit your job. He's saying if your job is too important to you, crucify that feeling. 
Not the job itself, but the status and stature that it might hold in your life. To crucify means it's painful too. Crucifixion was usually left to the worst offenders. And it was designed to feel bad. And so for a lot of us, when we decide to put something to death, we, go, we try to do it gently and easy and the temptation is to go back. Paul's saying, no, if, it, if it's painful, that's probably a sign that you're actually doing it. And then lastly, also, crucifixion means the death is decisive. Sometimes people labored for a long time on a cross, but everybody knew once you were up there, you were going to die. It was over. It was decisive. It was certain to hang on a tree. So if you're struggling with the same sin issue, the same over-desire over and over and over again, you might not have crucified it. If you're still making excuses for it, if you, if you said sorry repeatedly, even with great intentions, doesn't mean you've actually done it. If you're still fondling it and holding it and caressing it and hoping in it, you haven't put it on the cross. You can't negotiate. You can't, it, it, you, you can't enter into peace negotiations with this. This thing has to hang there. And you have to do it. If you want change in your life, if you want resurrection power in your life, uh, if you want this to be changed in you, you have to kill sin before it kills you. So how do you actively do this? It it's actually can be a long process. You have to think, how do I put this thought, feeling, action to death? For me, a lot of times it's self-pity. What have I done with self-pity? I've embellished it. But what's the lie that self-pity is telling me? What's, what, you know, what, what am I embellishing in self-pity? What am I listening to? And now you got to take that and you got to put that to death. Find it out before it kills you. Think, uh, look at Jacob and Joseph. Jacob put everything into Joseph. He said, I need to be a good father, so I'm going to dote on him. I'm going to give him every ring and cloak and money. And if he lives a good life, if he's happy, then I'm going to be happy. And he did this, but what did he do? He did all this to the detriment of Joseph and his other sons, right? Who were not loved the way they should have been loved. And then Joseph was, you know, what might have been considered love, but actually it led to be, him being prideful and self-important and full of pomp. In the end, to save Joseph, Jacob had to be lost. And to save Joseph, Jacob had to lose Joseph. What might be the Josephs in your life? What might be the things that you love too much that you've doted on that are killing you or you're killing them? All right, last point. All right, what do we do about this? How do, how do we actually do this? And I, I think I've already alluded to this. No amount of grit or stoicism or willpower or, or self-assurance is going to get you there because you know why? Those are usually the things that are causing the problem in the first place, that you've over-relied on these things. Thomas Chalmers once said this. He said, the tendency of the human heart will always be to lay hold of something. And if displaced, if you ever displace it, it'll just be given another affection. See, the human heart, we, we're effective hearts. We, we go after things. So if you want to change what you're going after, Chalmers says you can only replace one affection with the expulsive power of a new one. And Paul shows us too. He says, if you don't want to be led by the flesh... Verse 25, that means that you need to be led by the Spirit. The dichotomy there is put there on purpose. It's one or the other. If you live by the Spirit, if you walk by the Spirit, if you're in step with the Spirit, 
then you have a new affection. Then you have a new heart. What might the Spirit be telling you, you say? Well, this is where you have to go to John 16, 14, where Jesus says this. He says, The Spirit will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let me say this again. This is important to know how the Spirit functions. The Spirit will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You want to know what the Spirit might be telling you? He's telling you only about Jesus. The Spirit is taking the parts of Jesus that you don't understand and you don't want to understand and maybe you even can't understand and over the lifetime of your life, over your lifetime, He's revealing those things to you like a floodlight so that you could see Him better. The Spirit has no desire to call any attention to Himself. You never see that in the Bible. All you see is Him wanting you to see Jesus. And now, and what about him? What, what should you see? You need to see him at the very least. You need to see him in a way that melts your heart away from these over-desires and then towards him to shift your affection from desiring them to desiring him. What if you knew what he went through? This is what 2 Corinthians 5 is so bent on, that if you knew that God made him who had no sin, sin for us, that he became the hideousness and he went, he went head over heels into that, took the judgment, pushed us out of the way of the oncoming traffic, got hit himself. That would move you. And so go back to truth for a second. What if you told the truth not because it, you got something out of it, not because it made you feel good, but because it was a good in and of itself? You'll know that you've really changed when you're honest, not because of the benefit of honesty, but actually, you're, when you do it, even if you lose by doing it, because what do you, what do you gain? You gain the, the fact that Jesus was honest. He stayed the course. He kept his end of the bargain. And when he does that, when you do it as well, you get a taste. You get an, you get a, an understanding and experience of who he is in a way you didn't have before. See, Jesus was honest by keeping his end of the deal, even when it didn't benefit him. Now, I want to be honest. Keep my end of the deal even when it doesn't benefit me. Now notice there, honesty is happening there not because of fear or pride. It's gratitude. In fact, fear and pride is destroyed because Jesus had to die for me. Right? I, I, I don't deserve his love. But fear is also destroyed. Why? Because if he would do this even if I don't deserve it, to know that I'm with him no matter what, that means I have nothing to fear, ultimately. Criticisms are going to come, and they're going to hurt. But you know what? They can't destroy you anymore. Losing your job, having your job fail you, that'll happen, but it can't ruin you. Why? Because I have him, and he has me. And as you continue to grow in who he is and what he's done, and you let that gratitude out of your heart, what you'll find is the beauty of his beauty becomes now your beauty. Sit and gaze at a mountain, and over time, the tranquility of it will change you. Sit and gaze at the beauty of a, of a piece of art. Over time, that beauty moves you and changes you. If you sit and gaze at Jesus, over time, it'll soften you, but it'll also make you more sturdy. 
It'll make you wise but joyous. It'll make you desire justice but love. Basically, the more you gaze at Jesus, the more you begin to look like him, the one who saved you. That's how you change. You first crucify the over-desires, and then you gaze at the beauty of the one who did this for you. This church, we, we would stop being stingy, not by forcing ourselves to be more generous, but to the degree that we see that Jesus was generous to you. How could you withhold your wealth when you realize that he didn't withhold his wealth from him or others? Go to anxiety. We will stop being anxious in this pandemic, not by just staring in the mirror saying, I'm not going to be anxious today. I'm not going to be anxious today. You can't will yourself. It doesn't happen that way. You'll stop being anxious to the degree that you hear the words of Luke 12 being said to you. Jesus there says, do not worry. I care for the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. How much more will I care for you? That means as gorgeous as a flower is, that means you're infinitely more gorgeous to him. Get close to the one who did everything in his power to get close to you. Only in the unconditional love of Jesus, now resurrected, can that destroy the fears of your heart and give rest to your weary soul that's really on overdrive right now. Fear, anxiety, pride, doubt, greed, they're destroyed by gratitude and security and love found in the delight and beauty of his love for us. So all we have to do to do this today is start with the very simple question, what are you know, something or someone besides Jesus has taken control of my heart. Functionally, it's, it's trust, it's, it's loyalty, it's service, and it's delight. What are the, who, who or what are those things? Put to death those things. Dethrone those over-desires and see him for you and sit in that space. That's all you have to do. That's all we can do. And if you did do it, you would change. Now and always. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray the beauty of who you are affects us. I think it's hard when all around us right now there's brokenness and there's hurt and there's uh, it's hard to see your beauty. I pray that, that it would break into the cracks and crevices of our life right now. Um, there's a lot of hurt and pain. There's a lot of uncertainty and doubt. I pray that we look forward to the resurrection, that we see that you're making all things new. And because you're making all things new, we know that you're going to make us new too. And we can, have a, we can rest in that assurance and have a taste of that, a security, a love, a peace, not falling into fear or pride, but just able to, out of gratitude, Father, serve and love and be salt and light in this world. I pray that you would move us out into this world to people who, might be hurting even more than us, and we don't even know it because we're, we're too focused on ourselves. I pray that we would pray for those in need, those who might not have you, to reach out to them, whether it's, it's in voice or email or text or any of the technologies you've given us. Help us to move out into this world, Father, with a power and renewed vigor that actually can only come in you. We pray things in your name. Amen. Thanks for tuning into our church's podcast. 
We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our podcast and we invite you to join us for worship on Sunday. We're located at the corner of West 64th Street and Central Park West. More details can be found on our website, lincolnsquare.redeemer.com. Thanks again for listening to the LSQ Podcast.